And my TV went. You want to start? Yeah. Or do you want to talk about something else for a while? Hello and welcome <laughs> to episode oh. 25. 25. The world famous Tetrapods Audio podcast. World famous. I'm Darren Nash. And I'm Darren Nash. How many listeners do we have now? 2,000 listeners. I was going to say to the nearest thousand, that'll do. Um, it's almost exactly 2,000. Yeah. Are we going to stick to the agenda? We just well, you agenda. never do, so... Always stick to the agenda. <laughs> <laughs> F, F you, haven't... Darren. F you. <laughs> F you. I better get the agenda in front of me. Um, so cu- just a couple of quick stupid stupid things from last time. There's a bit when... Is it, is it, was it last time there was this discussion about... Where was the thing? No, I think I've already covered that. The thing where I was talking about... Uh, are there any vertebrate lineages that have kind of taken to the land in the same way as tetrapods are that aren't tetrapods? And there's a bit when I say that there's a group of vertebrates. There's, there's, there was, uh, doesn't, it actually doesn't matter. It's too with some confusion over using the word vertebrate, non-tetrapod vertebrate instead of tetrapod. I essentially called mudskippers tetrapods. I think I, think I cleaned that up last time. Uh, I meant to listen. So much has happened since hang last on, Hang on, was that follow-up or just a correction? Uh, it was a, well, there's follow-up. Did anyone else notice that or was it just you? No, just me, but it annoys me that I screw so screw up. So that's follow up from you, follow up from yeah. Darren. Well, this, this is all follow up from Darren. So <laughs> much as it's been weeks since the last one. I listened to it, but since then I've gone back and listened to others, and lots have happened. I've been away, and um, we still have that problem, by the way, when you listen to old episodes and they don't play all the way through. So that's that's an, an issue that's nothing to do with us. That's to do with the uh, the software used by Squares, Squarespace. Because so, other people have commented on that. It's yes. still there. Yes. Well, I'm... unfortunately, there is literally nothing I can do about that except write my own podcasting platform. And <laughs> to be honest, I don't have a lot of interest in that at the moment. Um, <laughs> I might do it if it's if it gets annoying enough, but I think the recent episodes are working, aren't they? Uh... At least they're working for me when I tested it, but... Yeah, yeah, it so, seems to be random. It's like you're listening to it and you think it's going great, and then it'll just stop. And it's and it says cannot access audio stream. So, what I would a... say though to people is that you know obviously the best way to do this is use podcasting software. So, you know, there's lots of things. And Mac says iTunes. I'm sure there's lots and lots of things on Windows which let you subscribe to podcasts. It's a better way of doing it. Um, the chicken study. The one about the genetics of chickens and the yellow skin gene. Um, I said that I said that I thought it was a paper from last year. I was I was completely wrong. It had actually come out like the day before I was talking about it, or even on the day that I was talking about it. So there you get cutting edge. Um, I mispronounced somebody's name. <laughs> David Foffer. It's not David. It's Davida. So I'm gonna take a drink. <laughs> That's all the follow-up stuff. <clears throat> I think. Um, where is the agenda? I love how you wait until we record to find the agenda. <laughs> because I was white I was elsewhere on Tinternet doing other stuff. Um, oh yeah, how long should I, right? So 
I think I asked in the last episode how long should episodes be because we're concerned that we produce monster episodes that are like two hours long. You remember this? Yes. So thank you to James Albright, Douglas Ravinsky, Nobel Laureate NP Mars, <laughs> Marcus Good, Tony Eels, Mike Trainer, and several others who've all provided feedback on this. You know what they all said? They like long episodes. No, they said it's too long. Cut it down. No, they said they said everybody who's expressed an opinion on this said, yeah, long podcasts are good. Keep it up. And a couple of crazy people have said, how about making them, how about making them twice as long? Yeah. <laughs> I'd love a four-hour podcast. Please, John and Darren. <laughs> yeah, sure. No problem. Um, so... So, yeah, I'm sure cool. you could. I'm sure you could drone on and on and on and on to make a four-hour podcast. I'm sure it's in you. <laughs> I'm sure you could talk for half an hour about Heartbleed and programming. <laughs> also, um, we need to get make uh, find some other films that I can criticise. Yes. Yeah, we could fill this in. We could fill this in easily. No, prob- no problem. It's all down to finance. Yes. Time and finance. Um, news from the world of John and Darren. Um. What have you been up to, John? Um, nothing much. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> been working on old pictures, which I just never seem to get finished. One new picture, and um, yeah, that's it. Wow, busy. Yeah, real busy. Well, you've had lots going on in the the house, haven't you? So, I have. Yeah. Yes. Been busy building, John the Builder. Um, so uh, can I? plug my t-shirt thing so i've now got i've opened the no no what what no you cannot plug your t-shirt thing (laughs) red bubble uh tetsu shop we already have obviously the tetsu podcasts shop where you can buy the tetsu podcasts t-shirt and such but now there's a tetsu shop so the uh i launched the yeah thanks to you for your for the help with the getting the image sorted let's not talk about that but um yeah we'll put that in the notes (laughs) Um, oh, the, I may as well say that this is not, I think I've like hinted at this enough times. I'm working on a giant book about the whole of vertebrate history, which is, which is why I've had to, uh, just all this fish stuff, just why I've had to deal with fish for so long now. Fish. God, I'm currently in, uh, sharks. Which isn't and Ray is actually raised today, which isn't too bad. They're not so so bad, but um, but it means that I've got to do a million illustrations, and I've been doing lots of turtles lately, doing some turtles today, and uh, yeah, sharks as well. Only um, you, Darren, would think uh, that perhaps you can do a textbook on vertebrate paleontology, the whole lot of it, write it and illustrate it, and think you might get it done in about six months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's not going so well, but um, it'll, but it will get done. It will get done. So so far, <laughs> I've finished all of the fish. <sighs> all of. I already want to swear so badly. I've done all the jawless things. I've done the placoderms. I haven't done acanthodians. I've done. Believe it or not, I have finished. Ray-finned fishes. Anyone who knows Actinopteridians, Ray-finned fishes, you'll know that's a big deal. Finished Ray-finned fishes. That's most of them, isn't it? <sighs> most vertebrates are Ray-finned fishes. Yeah. 
so that section of the book oh my god what a nightmare um yeah i nearly died and i've still got to do fleshy finned non-tetrapod fleshy finned fishes sarcopterygians and i've got to finish chondrichthians and each chapter by the way i'm also getting it reviewed by one sometimes two sometimes three people um jawless fishes has been reviewed Rayfin Fishes is currently being reviewed. Placodams, I haven't sent that off for review. The other things are, this is how bad things are. I was talking to someone about placodonts the other day. Placodonts. Yeah. They're Sauropterygian reptiles. They're good and interesting. Really, really like placodonts. And I, and I recalled them placoderms. <laughs> oh, the humiliation. That was so bad. So that's how bad things are. That's just oh. unforgivable, Darren. <sighs> I'm surprised they just didn't punch you in the nose right there. No, but look, there's a turret I've drawn. That's highly Achilles. Do you like it? That's very, very nice. So that's good for our listeners. Loads more of those. Um, the Lime Regis Fossil Festival happened, uh, well, about two weeks ago now. Uh, always good fun. I helped with um, Jess, Lawrence Wujek, Liz Martin, Aubrey Roberts, um, Luke Musket. And a couple of undergrads, Matt and, uh, ooh, I've forgotten your name, sorry, but whatever. We, we had a, a, a stall, a uh, University of Southampton stall. <clears throat> I kind of got roped into helping. I just wanted to go along to, you know, to DOS, do my own thing. <laughs> but I ended up having to help at the stand, which was, yeah, fair enough. Um, <laughs> Don't they know who you are? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Luke... <laughs> So Luke works on the biomechanics of plesiosaur paddles, and he bought like a, a fl- mini flume tank. And when he wasn't there, I like looked after the flume tank. And basically, flume tank is like a fish tank with toy paddles and a Meccano set in it mm-hmm. to mimic the full-size flume tank, which is like four meters long and has a giant robot on the top of it and lasers and everything. So kids loved that. I was, I said the same thing about how we might study the mechanics of. Please all paddles to about a hundred people, which is okay. Um, the, we were next to British Antarctic Survey people, and the cool thing they had is they had a um, a, a um, like a illustration showing various extant and extinct what penguins, giant fossil penguins. Discuss. You could stand next to a giant fossil penguin, which I thought was quite good. You also got little stickers. I'm as tall as Anthroponus northern skeldii. There's a little sticker. I wish I'd taken. See that? Yeah, also, <laughs> great for our listeners. I'm as tall as a fossil penguin. Anthropornis northern skeldii. That's pretty good. Um, <clears throat> Horace, the giant robot pliosaur, is there again. And the highlight, the main reason I wanted to go was because our friend Mark Witten had a paleo art gallery, which was really cool. Um, you might have seen the pictures on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're on, some of it's on his blog. So... It's a good excuse if you've got a gallery to obviously get a lot of your pieces framed and also make prints for sale and everything. I, I really enjoyed it. And um, I didn't, I meant to read, you know, you're hanging out in a gallery and lots of other people turn up. So you end up talking to the people. You don't read the stuff on the walls. I, I wanted to read the the, 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 the like panel that was all about, you know, sort of a Mark's biography. Because I don't really know anything about it. Very mysterious character. Yeah, mysterious, yeah. Um, Doesn't say very much. <laughs> Sit there like a sphinx. <laughs> yeah. This week, not this week is. Um countdown to 
Godzilla. Oh, is it? Okay, Godzilla. sorry. Yeah. Godzilla comes out on Thursday or Friday, depending on where you live. Mm. I'm going to see it in the IMAX on Friday. Ooh, can't wait. Okay. It's gonna be, gonna be so cool. Mm. Well, I definitely need to see it because then we need to do the um, the need to do the podcast about it, right? <laughs> yes. The John Winge. <laughs> <laughs> the Darren. Oh man, it was so awesome. That was so good. Did you see that? Did you see that? And did you hear the reference to that? Yeah. <laughs> so many references. <laughs> Godzilla's got sauropod feet, which is quite good. Doesn't have theropod feet. It's got giant yeah. like tortoise feet. That's interesting. Is yeah. Although uh, that's sort of in keeping with the original one, isn't it? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Mm. Um, been working on quite a few things lately. The Shanklin Crocodiliform manuscript with Mark Young and Lorna Steele and others. Finding out the way, that's good. Uh, and right, Tetsuicon. Take Tetsu-Con. it away, John. Take it away, me. Yeah, so we've got a venue um, booked and confirmed, and it's the London Wetland Centre, and it's going to be on the twelfth of July. Um, we have a web page where you can book. It's at tetsu.com/convention. Um, so you go there and you can book your tickets. It's forty pounds. Um, we've got a number of speakers lined up, don't we, Darren? Who are they? Confirmed speakers. Confirmed speakers. On a wide range of topics involved in the all things to do with, obviously, the world of tetrapodzoology. And to those people who are concerned that it's going to be silly or slapstick or in, in any way like the content of the podcast or any of the things on the fringes of, of the tetsu world, like, I don't know, uh, Tetsu Time, the Adventure Time. So, somebody said that. Is it going to be at all like the Adventure Time themed comic that's associated with Tetsu? It's like, no, that's just a that's just a web comic that, that, that our friends a, do. It. That's a comic. Yes. It's, no, we're not running a convention. It, it will be. I mean, I wouldn't like to say that it's going to be as technical as a conference, but it's certainly. But the talks are going to be, you know, talks that you would expect at a, a convention or, or or a conference. So. um We've got stuff covering the whole range from there's there's several talks on on fossil uh, vertebrates tetrapods. God, I nearly said vertebrates then, hard oh Tetrapods, fossil tetrapods. I don't want any fish in it. Christ. Um, <laughs> um, there's uh, there's one or two talks that are cryptozoological in scope. There's stuff on conservation biology and you know uh, importance of animals to people and stuff and uh, wildlife art photography, a paleo art workshop of some sort. There will be a quiz. This is sounding very familiar. I think I've said some of this before, but um, um yeah, I don't. I don't think we have said this before. Yeah. Yeah. So podcast. So yeah, that's what it's going to be like. So it's going to be a little bit like a what, like a scientific conference, but there'll also be some other fun bits and also some topics that wouldn't normally be done at a fairly straight ahead. Yeah, I'm um, thinking zoology it, conference. I'm thinking of it as a hybrid between a. A kind of think of a friendly technical conference that you've been to, and such things do occur. A hybrid between that and a special interest convention. So, like a, a comic convention or a sci-fi convention. You know, there's stalls and there's people talking about stuff, and there's a good atmosphere. Kind of a cross between that and, uh, and yeah. a conference. So, let's hope it works out. Well, yeah. How can it go wrong? How can it go wrong? <laughs> what could possibly go? <laughs> yeah. So. So that's so so good and uh, yeah. Yep. So um, that's uh, tetsu.com slash convention. 
good work. Right. Right. Uh, very briefly, because mm-hmm. you always you always talk for too long on this, but very briefly, just mention new, exciting news from the world of news. Um, <laughs> news well, from the world of news. Before I start on that, let's lower. That's a very busy planet. There. <laughs> Um, kind it's of... all news all of the time. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, sort of, well, kind of. This bridges the gap between follow-up and news. We've just heard today that because we've spoken a couple of times about the Alien films and the design of xenomorphs in the Alien films, and I think we specifically mentioned H.R. Giger. And the news has come in today that sadly he has passed away. He has died, and that's all I know. I haven't like read anything about that. Mm. Um, yeah, I haven't. Of... Yeah, I only found out it just before we did the podcast, so yeah, I haven't had time to look at it very much either. Yeah, that's a shame. His um, designs in Alien were really, really good. I'm I'm not super familiar with a lot of his other work. I have looked at it, and I do like it. Um, but do you know much about his... Are you a follower of Geiger? I wouldn't say that I'm a follower or a fan of it, I've, but I've just... Um, I do remember seeing, years ago, a book of his artwork. Um, and... It's uh, it does all kind of look, it does have the look of the the uh, the like xenomorph landscape, as in what you see on LV four two six and that sort of stuff. Uh, penis landscape, for example, is one of his best known pieces. It's very uh, weird, kind of cross between biotech and um, weird sort of organic shapes that are that are deliberately sinister and. Uh, the spo- I think it's designed to make you feel uncomfortable. Or if it's not designed to make you feel uncomfortable, it, it, it's kind of that's the thing. He's such an he's an expert. He was an expert at. So, um, uh, yeah. But I can't really say I know more about it. I, I certainly wouldn't have thought, having seen interviews of him and pictures of him, I wouldn't have thought he was um, at the time in life where you would expect him to die. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't know more than that. He but, was um, he was seventy four. Well, there you go. That's yeah. that's not that's uh, people. That's that's younger than the average uh, life expectancy in this part of the world. It is these days. But um, yes, so that's sad news. But um, so our respect and wishes to him and his family and stuff. Um, so they go back. So there's that. We we I I actually watched the whole of the Alien Quadrilogy on DVD lately. Will and I bought it and um. Well, that was a mistake because why do you want to watch the third and the fourth one? I mean, well, he will. I wanted to. I wanted to introduce Will to it because he he doesn't. You know, he hasn't yeah, seen but, this stuff. Yeah, but you should pretend that those two don't exist. Yeah, it's like the Star Wars prequels. Yeah. If you've got a chance, just sort of somehow <laughs> expunge them. Yeah. But I like, I, I do like it when there are these extra things that are in movies that you didn't know about and you only know about when you see like the director's cuts on DVD. So Alien Resurrection, it's got some good bits in it, but generally it's terrible. That's the one with the stupid baby hybrid thing called a newborn. And um, oh, the, the stuff, there's some extra stuff. So we're watching the director's cut and there's, there's extra stuff in it. It's like, oh, this wasn't in the original. Yeah, now I know why it wasn't in the original. So do you know Alien Resurrection? I no, I haven't seen it. I refused to watch it because it looked stupid. Okay. Really, really well, stupid. Well, I thought it would just make me real, real angry. Well, so I didn't. Like, okay, like a lot of films, it's a terrible film, 
but it's still got a few seconds in it that are quite good. And for example, <laughs> one of the best bits of the movie is so they're on a ship that's programmed to go back to Earth. And that's how they say it. They say Earth. Everyone makes a point of saying Earth because the idea is that it's not a familiar place to them anymore. They don't want to go back to Earth because it's basically a dump. We don't know what's happened, but something bad has happened. So they find out they're going back to Earth. It's, oh, no. And at the very end of the film, their ship, the Betty, is, is coming into dock over Earth and Call, one of the main characters in it, played by Winona Ryder, she looks down over a cloudscape and says, I didn't know it would be beautiful. And that's pretty much the end, right? I think there might be another line, I don't know. <laughs> There's a thing about Ripley saying, I don't know, I'm a stranger here myself, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and that's good. That's just a nice bit looking at that. And, that. and guess what? <laughs> in the director's cut, in the director's cut, that doesn't happen. <laughs> the one good bit in the film. Instead, the Betty lands, <laughs> Call and Ripley get out, sit down in a wasteland, and uh, say some stupid vacuous lines about, oh, I suppose the military will turn up in a minute. Yeah, better get her out of here. Uh, so what are we going to do? I don't know. I'm kind of an alien here myself. Look to the left. Oh, Paris. <laughs> <laughs> They're looking out over the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> I'm not joking. It's like, I thought this was an alien film. Uh, I don't, okay, Paris might still exist in the alien universe, but. Um, uh, yeah, I, yeah. Don't get me started. It's all uh, dumb. Any uh, all the expansion to Alien has been disastrous. They should not have expanded the universe or tried to explain anything or done anything. <clears throat> it's all been stupid and annoying. And they're <clears throat> going to do it. They do it with the thing as well. They're probably going to make that worse one day. Someone will have another prequel to the thing. Oh God! <laughs> I need to listen to what we said about the thing again. Refresh my memory. Okay, so uh, what? Prometheus, freaking Prometheus! Oh, Prometheus! Oh, God, no, just stop! Oh no, really? Yeah. Oh Jesus, no, 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 no more of that stuff. That's just yeah. rubbish. I went and watched the deleted scenes of that recently as well. And it's, what the hell? The whole did, scene. Uh, this, did this, they this, make this, it better or worse? Uh, well, neither. It's like they, the, like, it, there's this. So there's the bit, I've only seen the film once, so I don't remember it, you know, I don't know it that well, but there's the bit where David, that's Michael Fassbender as a synthetic person, the robot, android, whatever, he talks to the, um, what are they called, engineers, and he talks to them in this, like, ancient language, which is meant to be the language of the engineers, and says these questions about, asks him these things about Wayland. <clears throat> and um, there's that, and there's that whole section. And there was quite a lot of stuff online about um, what language are they actually speaking, because it's not subtitled. And the story is they went and uh, spent some time with um, a uh, what do you call someone who's an expert on languages, a linguistic, you know, like a, a scientist who studies the phylogeny of languages or something. Um, linguistician, <laughs> linguistologist, linguist, linguist. Well, no, because linguist is someone who's, isn't that someone who's versed in speaking in other languages rather than someone who actually studies the uh, the evolution of language? Oh, we're going to get yeah. such feedback from this. Because um, you know that's like the main thing that people go into and they've got really into cladistics, right? Yes, I am aware of, of work on the cladistics of language. Well, 
it's basically they're talking in some like proto there's there's a there's a language that's kind of meant to have been common to European peoples and Indian peoples. I think it's it's either called Proto-European or Proto-Indian or Indo-European. I can't remember. And um it's it's that language. <clears throat> anyway, mm. let's get this back on track, John, you and your crazy tangents. Yeah. Um new papers. Um so a couple of dinosaury things and a couple of mammaly things. Dinosaurs. What are people talking about in the world of dinosaurs? World of Mesozoic dinosaurs, anyway? Um, this uh, Tyrannosaur. I would have said Dinochirus, top of the list. Because, oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, because yeah. it's not published. So at SVP last year, um, a team uh, announced their new data on Dinochirus, showing that, which Dinochirus, for those of you who don't know, it's always been known from its incredible arms and hands. Its arms and hands are 2.4 meters long or thereabouts, and probably those of a giant orthomimosaur. It turns out that basically most of this, most of the animal is not, is known, and at this SVP talk, SVP is the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting. Um, a team spoke about the like um, the pelvis and the vertebrae and other bits and pieces, and they showed it's got like a giant sail. So there's there's a huge number of pictures online that now show Dinocarus with a giant sail. Well, other material is now known, including feet and a complete skull. I've seen all this material in person. Um, and it's kind of like moved around a few places. It was, not, it hasn't been published on, but it's been, uh, it's shown in some news articles that are talking about the repatriation of this material to Mongolia because it had been like somehow, somehow illegally got out of Mongolia. And the skull, which is something like, I would say something like 80 centimeters long, maybe a little bit more. It's an ostrich dinosaur skull, but it, it's got like a giant spatula uh, rostrum, which makes it look like a Edmontosaur. So there's already various comments online where people are saying, wow, it looks like a weird hybrid between an ostrich dinosaur and a hadrosaur. So, so Dinochirus, giant, three-fingered, ornithomimosaurian arms, a humpback or a sail, and a big duck head. It's kind of like a weird-looking beast. So, so that's people have been talking about that. None of this is yet published properly, so we shouldn't really talk about it at all. But uh, we now know a lot about this animal. And there's more to come. I keep saying this, there's more to come. Um, I'll just say very briefly, there's a complete specimen, another one, but um, I won't say any more than that. <laughs> the sail thing is very interesting, isn't it? Because that's turning out to be relatively common. And um, yeah, I, I'm just, I think that's quite an interesting little detail. Yeah, it's, it's problematic. Oh, problematic, sail's problematic. Okay. Well, yeah, because all these things of of some stage. This is the case with the Tarbosaurus that was in the news recently as well. They have been illegally smuggled out of or sold out of Mongolia. Yeah. Um. And and exactly who is involved and how this happened. Okay, you mentioned the Tyrannosaur. This is called. It's spelled. If I was a dumb English person, I would say it Quianzusaurus, but apparently it's pronounced. Chianchusaurus, Chianchusaurus sinensis, and it's an Alioramus-like tyrannosaurid published by Junsheng Liu and colleagues in Nature Communications, brand new paper. Um, Alioramus is a long-skulled tyrannosaurid with famous for having not only kind of like hornlets around the, the eyes, as is typical for tyrannosaurids, but it's also got a long and low snout and a series of hornlets, six or so hornlets along the dorsal surface of the snout. And this animal, Chianchusaurus, has got 
a very similar deal going on, but it's much bigger than Ali Aramis. Um, there have been suspicions that Ali Aramis, which is known from two species now, it's been suge suggested that, that Ali Aramis might be a juvenile of another Tyrannosaurid, but Cheyenne-Shusaurus is, is big, and um, this paper by Luatel, they basically argue that there's no way it can be uh, these things can be juveniles. They're a distinct lineage of gracile snouted Tyrannosaurids. <clears throat> a couple of things that are of special interest. Um, I mean, they name they name a Tyrannosaur lineage Aliaramini, um, which they have to they have to credit George Olszewski for that. Those of you who are familiar with uh, dinosaur taxonomy might be familiar with George Olszewski. He's kind of he, he's sort of like um, he's not really active these days. There was a time when he was very active in the certainly in the internet dinosaur community. Um, wasn't ever really. I made a mistake when I was younger of paying a lot of attention to people who made a lot of noise online and thinking that these are people that are actually, you know, involved in the field of paleontology, whereas they're really not. You really <clears throat> should pay attention to these people. Yeah, that not being... I mean, God, really. Yeah. Ooh. Blogging away, podcasts, and all hot air, I tell you. Edit that out, excuse me. Um <clears throat> But uh, but sometimes you know these people that do this stuff they do they do coin names or whatever that we have to use. So this Ali Arminius first used by Olszewski, and then there's a little bit in the paper about okay. So there's this thing ongoing in the background: the dinosaur sex wars. These elaborate structures that we see in dinosaurs and also in pterosaurs too. Um, are they sexual display structures, which myself and colleagues have argued they are, or do they have some other function? For example, if an animal's got horns, is that because uh, the horns evolved within the context of selection for skewering open trees or skimming through the water <laughs> or, or uh, sending sonic booms towards pterosaurs to knock them out of the sky. You know, people come up with all these kinds of fantastic and intelligent uh, functional hypotheses. And among those is the idea that they um, are species identification devices. You can only identify another member of the species because it's got like horns or whatever. And that's alluded to in the paper. Um, but I, I won't say any more about that because, well, something else is coming out about it fairly soon. And, and <laughs> talk, talk for ages about it, obviously, having published on it. Finally, two new mammals, both of which have really stupid names. So there's a... Bandicoots have a rich and interesting fossil history, and Riversley in Queensland, uh, Australia, has produced a lot of like interesting bandicoots, many of which are not part of the modern bandicoot group, the crown bandicoot group. Uh, a team led by Kay Trevulin. I don't know how to pronounce that surname, and I've definitely got it wrong there. Drink. Trevulin? It doesn't Trevulin. count if it's tea, Darren. It's water. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even tea. <laughs> Trevulin, Han, Archer and Black, JVP, Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. They have published on the oldest modern type bandicoot, and guess what they've called it? Well, that's in the show notes here. I had no idea what this was about, and I was thinking, why is that in there? Is that the film that he wants to talk about? Not a film, it's a game. What, Crash? Crash, Crash Bandicoot. You didn't film. put Bandicoot in the show notes, though. You just put Crash. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, Crash. There's actually two movies called Crash. Uh, both are very different uh, content. Both very good. So, yeah, Crash Bandicoot is an over-new fossil Bandicoot. <laughs> Crash Bandicoot. Is it a good idea or a bad idea? What do you reckon? Hang on, hang on. Is it species name Bandicoot? Yes. <laughs> so it's really? a binomial. It's called Crash Bandicoot. Crash 
Two words. Crash Bandicoot. Yeah. Like, mm. kid. I think it's a bad idea. No, not because I, I think it's kind of funny and, you know, well done for, you know, milking the teat of publicity. <laughs> but but, but it's, it's a bad idea because if you Google it, <laughs> do you find the fossil? No. You find about a million pages. Now, I know you could say, oh, you could easily put in, you know, whatever filters into Google to find it. But, mm, yeah, but know. on the other hand, maybe you're not actually, you know, if you're the type of person that's attracted by the publicity of something like the Bandicoot being named Crash Bandicoot, you probably don't need to know about that Bandicoot in particular, do you? Is there something particularly cool about this one? Or is it just, it's, you know, you'll end up reading about Bandicoots in general? The latter, because it's the key thing is that the idea is that it's the first of these modern ones, and it shows how they crashed into Bandicoot um, history during during the the mid mine. <laughs> so, and there's there's another Bandicoot named in the same paper, which is like a member of a sort of older lineage. So it crashed Bandicoot. Here's then what I gets... generally think about this sort of naming thing: is yeah, okay, we can we can have a few of these jokes, and they're kind of funny. But if too many people start to do it, it'll just be stupid, right? It's, are... it's something that you can't universally recommend, but occasionally it's fine. Yeah, I mean, there are hundreds of names, like silly names out there, but, well, in agreement with what you've just said, within the roster of names in general, they are a minority. So there's, there, there might be like, there might be 400 stupid names, but there's over a million named organisms. So, yeah. in the grand scheme of things. There are, for those of you who don't know, there are creatures with names like Etu Brutus. Um, I, 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 very peculiar, Dolly Kiss Me, um, uh, uh, I Can Has Cheeseburger, uh, there's, there's tons, there's just so many. Um, uh, there's so another one that's interesting, named by Richard Stuckey and Herbert Covert, <laughs> Herbert Covert, sorry, not funny, in Journal of Vertebrate Paratology, again, God, bloody journal. Um, it's a hamacodontid artiodactyl from the Eocene of Wyoming, and it's named after Lady Gaga, and it's called Gaga Don Mini Monstrum. <laughs> and this has got no relationship whatsoever to the fossil or what it is, where it comes from. Um, Gaga Don, uh, Lady Gaga's followers, I believe, are called Mini Monsters, so hence Gaga Don Mini Monstrum. So there you go, Gaga Don Mini Monstrum and Crash Bandicoot. So people have this thing where they name <laughs> tangent <laughs> where they name their fans something. Mm. I find that really weird. Mm. What are we going to name um the listeners of the Tetsu podcast though? Tetsulings? <laughs> Tetsulings? No, you can't name them that. <laughs> well, There's well, always got to you... be something that's quite different. It's, yes. It doesn't can't have the name in it. Like, it's you can't call job. them gargarlings or something like that. It's, it's Any not... monsters. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. Should we take uh, suggestions? Let's take suggestions. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm a big fan of the Scissor Sisters. And do you know what their followers are called? <laughs> Nuns. <laughs> what? Why? Actually, mate, possibly that's possibly just followers of Animatronic, who's the, the one of the lead singers of the Scissor Sisters. But, um, yeah, um, I don't know. Podlings, Podowans, <laughs> Podowans. <laughs> um, is there anything to say about this um, Gargadon? Gargadon. Well, 
Well, what do you want to hear about homacodontids? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Exactly. But so, our listeners might want to hear something. Well, there's a whole bunch of Eocene stem artiodactyls conventionally included within the, oh, what are they called? Diacodexis is the, is the classic one that's always illustrated and spoken about. I can't remember the name of the family. But there's 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 a, a large number of lineages of small small as in these animals are let's say seventy centimeters long, about thirty centimeters tall at the hips, small slinker type, omnivorous, kind of long tailed, little deery antelope type things that would have that would have used uh, they would have like pulped fruit and eaten leaves and inverted occasionally invertebrates and stuff. And homacodontids are one of several lineages within that. They may be close to uh, Cetanchodontomorphin origins, which is the clade that includes hippos and cetaceans, and maybe uh, entelodonts and Andrusarchus, those kind of things. Goddamn um, mammal phylogeny. It makes no goddamn sense. Doesn't it? The things that are meant to be related, they just seem so morphologically plastic. With dinosaurs, you just look at them and you know, just like you can tell. You can tell what they are, <laughs> can right? You? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> broadly speaking, the big groups, yeah, you can tell how they're related. It's obvious. Mate, well, unless we've got everything well, wrong. Theropods start because... to get really complicated, but other things are fairly simple. Well, this is an interesting And Ankylosaurs and Stegosaurs, they look related, right? Yeah, but... And they are, yeah. and then you go, but... and yeah, but they look a bit like this, and then, yeah, it all just sort of flows out naturally. Maybe but... Ceratopsians are a bit weird. <laughs> Shut up, why? <laughs> but why? But why does mammal phylogeny, placental mammal phylogeny, anyway, look that weird? And and I would say it's because a lot of these ideas have come about through um, molecular phylogenetics. So whippermorphs, whales, and um, hippos, like that's not an idea that people arrived at based on analysis of morphology alone. They came up with these molecular phylogenies based on extant taxa, and then later, people, now people have got much better at doing phylogenetics, they've learned of ways of combining anatomical data, which you can get from fossils. fossils. They've combined that with, uh, what I mean, that's the only data you have in fossils. It means basically they can throw all these fossils into an analysis, the backbone of which is molecular. So loads of stupid surprises. So yeah, if, if it was just based on morphology alone, would people have definitely put cetaceans deeply nested within artiodactyls. You might say yes, because now we've discovered loads of archaic stem cetaceans. They do have characters that definitely link them to some artiodactyls or, or to artiodactyls in general. But whether you would deeply nest them within a clade that includes hippos and entelodonts and whatnot, um, we don't, well, I don't know. I don't know that we, that we would. And, if, and, and likewise, think of Afrotherian. That's a, Afrotheria is a classic example where you've got this clade that includes Cyrenians and Proboscideans as well as, <laughs> sorry, you can't hear the dog, can you? No. Oh God, it sounds like Star Wars Cantina in here. Jesus. Um, um, <laughs> um, Afrotherians, the fact that okay, Hyraxes, Proboscideans, and Cyrenians, yeah, no problem. Good, good morphological support for that. Everyone, that's non-controversial. But the fact that you've got Tenrex and Golden Moles uh, and Otter Shrews and whatever going in with that clade as well. So we wouldn't have suspected that based on anatomy alone. 
So now take all that to a group like Mesozoic dinosaurs, where we don't have a molecular phylogeny. Are we sure that we're right? Are we sure that that the tidy the things that you've just been talking about, which make sense, are we sure they're right? Because we can only, as always with science, say always say the same thing. Can only base conclusions based on the evidence you have. We can't go further than the data we have. But there's this slight suspicion that uh, these things are wrong. Yeah. No, I yeah, I understand that. I would say it's fairly unlikely in the broad strokes type thing. Given that a lot of these mammals, their fossil records, now I don't know a lot about mammals, but a lot of them were a bit spotty when we were trying to figure this stuff out. Be interesting to do now a a big morphological analysis and see how things come out. Cuz I'm betting it wouldn't be tremendously surprising. I think it would look very similar. I'm sure things would get shifted around, but I don't I I I suspect that it would look fairly similar to the hybrid well, um, molecular. Yeah. 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 This 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 has this has specifically what you've just mentioned has specifically has been done. Robert Asher has published a couple of papers on this, for example. And the the general the take home is so as simple as possible, is the cores of the modern identified clades, the the, the like core taxa do group together and you can see that if you go if you trace phylogenies all the way back through to the start of our understanding of evolutionary history um the the like the main clusters have always been together but what's changed is exactly their exact relationships to one another and which taxa you bolt on to these like core clusters um yeah. i think what's um i could just be completely wrong about this but it looks like to me mammals look like they had this explosive radiation where lots of things looked fairly similar and turned into, well, a couple of dozen clades of radically different things later. Mm. Whereas dinosaurs, if I seems to me, are a bit more stepwise. You can follow them as they appear. Um, the separation doesn't seem as. How much? It looks more like a. Uh, yeah. I think Can't I know what you mean. You out. mean that we've got like it looks like we've got sort of slow burn fuse kind of things at the start of dinosaur history, because um, we've got we've got di dinosaurs explosion diversity after the end of the Triassic when several other archosaur groups are knocked out, and it seems that in the early Jurassic, the only reasonable sized terrestrial animals we've got are the early members of the dinosaur lineages that radiate extensively during the rest of the Mesozoic. So you're saying that we see the early origin of thyreophorans, we see the early origins of like sauropods and, and the first big theropods and that sort of stuff. So yeah. maybe there's and, a And if you cut things off at Lake Cretaceous, like that's how we think of dinosaur diversity, it's not like you imagine there was a lineage that led to hadrosaurs that goes all the way back to the Triassic that doesn't include a bunch of other things. Yeah, that's true. Whereas I think you've, sorry, the end of the, the beginning of the Jurassic, which is sort of the feeling you get with mammals. You know, you've got these big groups and they've actually been separated for a long time, but they all go back to a, a stock of things which look vaguely similar. I mean, I don't know. That's probably just because I don't know anything about mammals, but there you go. No, it's, no, it's true because there are, in the, the Paleocene and the Eocene as well, there's this huge range of like little. I don't want to say the old stereotypical shrewy thing, but you know, there's like little stoty type things and little moly type things and little sort of deary type things. <laughs> <laughs> and it's proven really difficult to, there's all kinds of competing ideas as to where they fit 
with relation to the crown that uh, crown lineages. So um, yeah, that, let's move on there because we could yeah. again we could talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Certainly, pa paleogene mammals. I've been trying to, I've been wanting to cover paleogene mammal diversity on Tetzu for uh, for years, and one of those things where I've got like loads of stuff half written in the background. I've never done it. Um, sorry, one other new paper I should just mention. Uh, Marcus Bullock just reminded me. Semi rostrum, which is the the half beaks or so called skimmer porpoise. This is this was featured on Tetzu years ago. It's a a very strange fossil porpoise where the lower jaw is longer than the upper jaw. So, of course, the, the joke, the reason it became known as the skimmer porpoise is because, well, that's the condition in drink hops, right? The skimmer birds, yeah. they fly and trawl their lower jaw through the water. So <laughs> this porpoise was clearly doing the same thing, <laughs> skimming um, somehow. But it's been published recently by, well, I know Bobby Bozenecker was involved. I don't have the paper in front of me. Um, but yes, they semi rostrum, which means half beak, the half beak porpoise. So that's out. Yeah, I didn't blog about it because other people did, including maybe Bobby. I don't know. Shall I Google it? You talk and I'll Google. Um, I've got nothing to say. I said we should move on to <laughs> yes. um, cash for questions. And there was a there was a segue there, but you then you went off on this porpoise tangent, and there was there's not a seg anymore. Okay, it was um, published by Rachel Rassico and Thomas Dereri and Brian Beatty and Robert Bozenecker. Unique feeding morphology in a new prognathus extinct porpoise from the Pliocene of California, published in Current Biology. So, the half-beak porpoise. Okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's do, let's do cash for questions. Ah! Cash for questions! <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Right, so our first question is a is was what I was gonna say into is from Irene Dels, rhymes with else, friend of the show. We often think of mammals as very successful based on today's diversity, but what on the other hand, they are the last surviving branch of a larger group of synapsida. Could you please Synaps talk about non mammalian synapsids? Synapsids, 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 synapsids. Yes, so thank you for the question, Irene. Do you want to say anything before I... Me? No, I don't really know anything about them. They they seem vaguely interesting, but when I Google them, I often just sort of think, eh, this is a lot of work, and I stop. Yeah, it is, it's a lot of work because there's this huge diversity of uh, predominantly Carboniferous and Permian animals that... Um, just haven't really a huge huge diversity of these things, but they haven't really been kind of synthesized in the same way that oh God, how often does this get said? I mean, so when you think of non mammalian synapsids, basically you look in all the books, Dimetrodon, uh giant well, not giant up to three meters long, sail backed um non mammalian synapsid belonging to a group called the Sphenacodontids, very similar superficially similar to Adaphosaurus, which is a uh, belongs to a group called the Adaphosaurids. These kind of early ones sort of look more lizardy. They look more reptilian. So that's why non-mammalian synapsids often were traditionally classified as, as reptiles. But then we see a clear and very nice progression in their evolution as they be like basically become more mammalian. So you see tail shortening, relevant to what we were talking about in the last episode. You see like a more erect gait evolving. You see stronger differentiation of dentition such that you end up with, you know, distinct incisors and canina forms and 
premolar and molar type things. You see some indication that maybe they are becoming, you know, fully, oh, dirty word, endothermic. Um, and then you end up with like a, a shrinking in size and the evolution of uh, the animals that conventionally we call mammals, but we really should call mammalia forms. So <clears throat> uh, synapsids includes a whole gamma of like starting out from reptile-like things, lizardy in body shape, all the way to to, to, to furry proto mammals, and, and there isn't really there's, there, people have tried to use the terms proto mammals and para mammals for these animals, but there isn't really a sort of handy catch-all term. I mean, it's non-mammalian synapses is kind of the only thing you've got to go for. And then you're talking about um, so from groups like baranopids, which sort of superficially recall uh, again they're like really early ones that look like. Uh, superficially like often illustrated like monitor lizards um ophiacodontids then through sphenacodontids and adaphosaurids and from sphenacodontid type animals you get like uh, the first therapsids this enormous group that includes uh, the gorgons the gorgonopsians like big short-tailed um kind of pseudo saber-toothed predators this is a huge group called the anomodonts which includes a load of um short-faced often tusked, beaked herbivores, including the dicynodonts, the dinocephalians, uh, which include like sort of, uh, the best known one is moss chops, short-tailed, big-bodied, really bulky, dome-skulled, kind of clunky-looking, weird South African herbivore, uh, biomasukians, Therocephalians, cynodonts. There's just too many of them. There's no way you could possibly credit within a within a podcast. I don't know. A big subject like this. What 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 do we talk about? I mean, I've just I've tried to kind of give like a some indication of a general trends. Uh, yeah. So group. no. Okay. Let's let's pin down a little bit what we're talking about. So you, we were talking about like people call them proto-mammals or paramammals and in some ways i think that's not what people are trying to get at i think what we're interested in are these big non-reptile line um tetrapods that are around in the um paleozoic right right so i think we're talking about paleozoic synapsids um because even if some of them were actually mammals, I think that people would still include them in this interesting group of things that were around before the dinosaurs that seemed to be, well, they seemed to really take off, didn't they? And they suffered quite a terrible extinction. So maybe we could just, we could talk about like, what, what about their extinction and that sort of thing? The, the general arc of the whole thing is quite yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, so we'll forget about mammalia forms, which obviously have persisted to the present, but, um, the majority of lineages go extinct at the end of the Permian. Some persist into the Triassic, and then you've got a big and diverse radiation of several lineages in the Triassic. The last of their kind. <laughs> I was going to say that's sounding familiar, yes. And then you've got, so groups like Dicynodonts, these tubby-bodied, relatively short-legged, short-faced, tusked or beaked herbivores, Dicynodonts, famous examples include Lystrosaurus, Canamiaria, um, for Sirius, uh, these animals persist into the Triassic and right up until the end of the Triassic, the last ones like um, Canamayeria and its relatives, they're pretty big animals, you know, they're like about, I'd say, sort of a meter tall and maybe like three meters long. Um, 
there's this suggestion from a single crappy fossil in Australia that they may have persisted into the Cretaceous. Um, this was covered in the Tetsu comments recently, a couple of weeks ago. There are, I think, there's a pretty good case for make. So, been interested in this. I wrote an article about this this fossil in uh, a long time ago, Tetsu version one, because if this is a chunk of maxilla with the caniniform tooth in place, if it really is a Cretaceous dicynodont, then it's like, wow, these animals were persisting, you know, cryptically in in faunas for on a hundred million years or whatever in Australia or somewhere in Gondwana, something very strange going on there. That's, that's kind of, you know, that's a long ghost lineage, a really interesting thing. Um, so I've asked various decided on well, synapsid workers about it. And they said, um, well, yeah, it really does look exactly like uh, a canamayeriform type decided on. Maybe that's what it is, but there's a, there's a revision, um, by Agnolin and colleagues, where they say that it looks like uh, it looks like part of the maxilla from one of those semi-terrestrial Sebakasukian crocodiliforms, and specifically the Baurasukids, which have quite big uh, caniniforms in the upper jaw. Mm. I was going to say, you know, if you're basing something on something that's like scrappy, it's just small bits of anatomy can converge almost <laughs> perfectly, can't they? So tell me about it. Oh dear, the mistakes you know, I've made. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just think that. <laughs> If it's in the right time and place, then you can be fairly certain. But if you're a hundred million years out, yeah, wow, you need you need a lot better than that. I think you're right. Yeah, but they got a high-profile paper out of it. Um, well, it's honest. certainly interesting. It's worth putting out there, isn't it? But it's not. Yes. Yeah, you should never be very confident in these things yeah. based on a a single bone or a couple of bits of bone. You know, I just don't. I don't think you can do it that way. I think oh, you're right. You can always be misled with little bits of bone. He says. The sting of Samrukia still fresh in my mind. Um, <laughs> that's a that's a that pterosaur that I mistook for a bird. Oh, what a what a gaff that was. But um, well, you're not the first person, are you? No, exactly. I think it's a forgivable gaff, and and lots. It's still an interesting fossil, and some other things have come out of it, which I can't talk about right now. But um, but yeah, back back to um, yeah yeah. So you got this yeah. So dicynodonts. There's like a big Triassic radiation. There's like stuff going on in the Permian as well with this group. Um, and some of these animals are, you know, in the same faunas as early dinosaurs and crop group uh, archosaurs like Rausukians and Aetosaurs and so on. But then at the same time, in the Triassic, you've got several lineages of carnivorous, omnivorous and herbivorous cynodonts all doing, all doing different things and at several different body sizes. Mostly they're like, um, you know, like less than less than a metre long. So uh, uh, with some um, independently evolving small size and there, there then being some controversy as to which are, which are closest to, to mammals or not, um, then there's also a case to be made that one of those lineages survived into the Jurassic because there's a thing from, uh, from the Jurassic called Chronoparates, which was suggested to be, again, a non-mammalian synapsid that persisted into the, into the Jurassic, but that's now been re-identified as a mammalian form of some, of some sort. Several different ideas as to what it is. Maybe it's a dry lestoid. Can't remember what the latest thinking is. But, um, yeah, yeah, big, big Permian radiation, major Permian extinction, several lineages radiating again in the Triassic, petering out towards the end of the Triassic, extinction in the Triassic, apart from mammalian forms. That's like your general pattern for non-mammalian synapsids. What do we know about their like 
their external appearance? Oh, good question. Um, so this is, in some ways, this is kind of similar to the, the debate people had had about non-bird theropods prior to Lyoning. So we've got good reason for thinking that early mammalia forms, early mammaly type things, classic example is like Morganucodon from the UK and Megazostrodon from China. Classic, you know, people have always imagined those Triassic mammalia forms to be furry. It's like unbelievable that they're not furry. And there are animals that may be close to them in phylogeny where we do actually have fur preserved now. Um, Multituberculate fur has been discovered in fossil droppings, uh, but actually they're not from the Mesozoic. They're like substantially younger and multituberculates may actually be like crown mammals anyway. But and oh, I could wrap myself into knots with this explanation. There's, there's good reason for thinking that all mammalia forms are furry. So it's very hard for anyone to get away with imagining something like Morganucodon as, as naked skinned. So on that basis, people have then looked at the cynodonts closest to mammalia forms like uh, tritylodontids and trilithodontids and um, uh, chiniquodontids and, and cynognathus and cyranaxodon and these things. And it's like they're so similar in overall gestalt to early mammalia forms that people have just thought, well, surely they were furry as well. <laughs> Come mm. on. Come on. Come best, on. Best, that best kind of scientific argument. Come <laughs> on. Just look at the damn thing. <laughs> Look, look, I've drawn one. Look. Look at the bones. Look at the bones. There's no way this was naked skinned. Um, and then people started saying, look at its snout. <laughs> it's got lots of little holes. Hair for hair. There's this argument that you can find in books and um, uh, a couple of technical articles which basically say that these little holes are for whiskers and therefore show they had hair well that is completely unreliable because um those little holes are nothing to do with hair and whiskers they are vascular foramina for nerves and blood vessels and stuff i've just remembered have you ever seen you've seen this book haven't you john mclaughlin's synapsida yeah. a new look into the origin of mammals so McLaughlin published this book called Archosauria, A New Look at the Old Dinosaur, which was one of the first books to kind of bring new look dinosaurs to the proletariat. <laughs> and and it's like, wow, surely this does the same thing for synapsids. Well, it kind of doesn't. It's just not as good. <laughs> but um, but this is one of the this is one of the sources I had in mind when I say that you get pictures of uh, animals with whiskers and stuff because of these like holes in their uh facial bones but bottom so line is sorry go on there are no skin impressions that's what i was gonna say bottom line is we know really next to nothing about the uh ex external integument of non-mammalian synapsids there's supposed to be skin impressions for a very famous and oft-mentioned dinocephalian called estimenosuchus from russia this is like a, a big omnivorous or herbivorous gnarly animal famous for having like giant laterally protruding cheek flanges and also horns as well got a long snout weird interlocking teeth that a lot of the dinocephalians had um there's supposed to be skin impressions and it's said that they reveal a naked uh 
skin possibly with glandular impressions or something like that. There's the intimation that it's kind of like naked mammalian skin, possibly with pores for glands or hairs or something. Um, I can't remember if I've ever actually seen an illustration of this because it's one of those things that's mentioned here and there in the literature, but oh, it's in some that, obs- yeah. Yeah, obscure descriptions of skin thing. impressions rather than just showing the damn photo. That's right. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I know this animal. This is that. It's, it's really quite big, isn't it? It's, um, it's three meters long. Yeah, yeah. Um, that yeah. crazy big head with the things sticking out all over it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, um, the biggest non-mammalian synapsids, they all seem to max out at about the same size. If you if you think of the ones like the um, uh, some of the predatory titano, um, uh, oh, good god. I want to say Titanosuchians, but I'm not sure that's right. Um, uh, Therocephalians. I'm not an expert on these animals. Gorgonopsians, Therocephalians. I'm thinking of Brithopodids, and we're trying to remember which group they belong to. there's, there's There's a group of predatory Dinocephalians, which, which include Brithopodids, these names, the people that don't know any of these animals, these names must be a complete waste of time. But they whatever. are a waste of time. I think most people don't know them. <laughs> yeah. There's a group of like big predatory ones with long snouts and like giant teeth that are long-tailed. But then the better-known predatory non-mammalian synapses, which include the um, uh, gorgons, gorgonopsians, they are comparatively short-tailed. Which, so they're different lengths because the longer-tailed ones have got longer tails, is what I'm saying. You compare them to like the biggest members of groups like the Dicynodonts and the Tapanocephalians, like Mosjelps I mentioned earlier. Apart from this, the fact that some of them have got long tails, they're all pretty much the, the same size. They all max out at about three meters total length. The biggest ones are like you know a meter, maybe, a little, maybe like 1.2 meters at the shoulder. But you don't get stupid gigantic ones like you don't get ones that are like two meters or three meters tall the shoulder so that's an interesting thing they didn't do the same thing dinosaurs did um or even croc group archosaurs because they got to stupid sizes like we were talking about what was the animal last time we were discussing for solosuchus this rausukian that was like maybe eight meters long or something absurd um yeah, so, um, and also even all mammals, for God's sake, also get quite yeah. big. Um, although well, it's rarer, isn't it? Um, um, and I did specifically say non-mammalian synapsids. Yeah, yeah. But no, sorry, get... comparing no comparing them to other yeah. other groups. Um, mm. Is do you think that has to do? It could have to do with well, no, because crocs get that big. But yeah. Um, but then actually, do crocs get? So there are some very large crocodiles, but of course they're mostly aquatic. Mm. Um, I wonder if it's got to do with because a lot of these non-mammalian synapsids seem to be sprawlers or semi-sprawlers, right? That's right. Yeah. I wonder I was, if there's that's... some sort of limit on how big you can get and still walk around on land effectively. Yeah. I without think evolving the graviportal gate. Yeah. Yeah. This is a big skin. animal. Like this thing, we uh, Estaminosuchus. Estaminosuchus. Uh, I mean, it looks like the size of a hippo or something. It's pretty big. A, a small hippo, not as long as a as a, as a hippopotamus amphibious, but um, and it's yeah. big and fat too. Like it looks, it's, uh, yeah, it looks rotund. Yeah, oh, that's right. A lot of them are very tubby-bodied, very broad as well as deep. 
So, but this, but the skin thing. I mean, um, we know that some of the really earliest synapsids, like varanopids, there are. Um, well, they they definitely had belly scales. But uh, the, uh, I should add the caveat here that what does a scale even mean? Because when you because scales doesn't mean the same for all groups of animals. So when we think when we say scales, we often immediately think of like lizard scales. Mm. But lizard scales are not homologous with like fish scales, which are not homologous with the sorts of scales that you might expect in a non-mammalian synapsid. Because lizard and snake scales are actual, is it that they are actual infolding, overfoldings of the epidermis, whereas fish scales are structures that are embedded within the epidermis and the the belly scales that I'm talking about that have been figured for some non-mammalian synapsids are of that kind. They're of they're these um, structures embedded within the epidermis, which later on became gastralia. So belly ribs or gastralia are uh, uh, what's the name for bones that form in the skin rather than uh, mm. yeah yeah. So, so there might be some scaly skin on some non-mammalian synapsids, but you shouldn't imagine them as like scaly in the same way that like lizards are. But for what this means, yeah, and it seems like scales are something that evolves because of a functional need or whatever, right? A lot of the time, because you've got yeah. mammals with scales, right? Pangolins, yeah, and that's they're not homologous to other scales certainly not no so but you can sort of evolve this sort of just hard structures on the surface of the skin which would yeah. likely to cause scales and lots of things could have these these structures and it's not necessarily related to any any of the other ones you can also have well, you can have keratinized patches of skin yeah not necessarily scales like a lot of turtles and some birds they've got like horny areas on their face or whatever mm. um so you could have that thing i mean we, the, some of the the um, non-mammalian synapses with like beaks, toothless beaks like dicynodonts, you would definitely expect them to have um, a true, you know, beak tissue like a turtle or a bird. But um, I think the best bet on the on the skin for most of them is that it was, um, yeah, that it was non-scaly, probably pliable, um, kind of not that different from like naked mammalian skin. But but which of them were? shaggy coated or whatever um again similar to dinosaurs you know there's a few reconstructions by by robert backer and greg paul in particular that do show some of these animals with like you know full-on shaggy coats and everything even the ones that aren't close to, to mammals and mm. there isn't the same amount of interest in it as there is with dinosaurs but it's kind of a similar controversy it's like will we will we one day find a uh, a dicynodont with like a thick shaggy coat because it lives in a cold environment or something so um yeah it'd be really interesting to get more skin impressions from these guys wouldn't it um, yeah but the problem is that people need to be able to place them in context and i think a lot of people don't even have the vaguest notion of what the phylogeny is and how these things are related to each other related to mammals related to other things i know i certainly don't really i can sort of guess based on the length of their tail <laughs> that's how, looking how, a bit more that's looking a bit more mammally <laughs> yeah well yeah and how differentiated their dentition are dentition is yeah and also how many bones they've got in the lower jaw because there's they, they do one of the reasons i think that they're in it's been said that they are a better illustration 
of evolution than things like dinosaurs is because okay, you kind of have to know the names of the groups to start with. But if you do know the names of the groups and you understand approximately the shape of the phylogeny, there's what looks like a really obvious trend. This is a horrible thing you should never say about evolution, but an obvious trend towards mammalness because you get like simplification of the cranium, a reduced number of bones, more bones fusing up, some bones becoming small, and obviously the whole story of the uh, the malleus, incus, and, and stapes, you know, what's going on with the jawbones going part of the ear. You've got simplification of the shoulder. shoulder. We've got clear indication that they're going from a sprawling gait to like a more erect gait. You've got the obvious evolution of a distinct lumbar region, the shortening of the rib cage. Um, what this means for the mechanics of breathing, the shortening of the tail that you've mentioned, um, evolution of the secondary palate, differentiation of dentition all occurring at the same time. And then the stuff that we know, there's several taxa where the fossils are good enough for you to be able to say things about what's going on inside the head, indications at the same time that the brain is becoming larger and more complex. So tie all those things together, and again, you've got a in massive quotes nice clear trend towards mammalness see you can get trends in we've talked about this a little bit with flight in that certain complexes of things are complementary so that once you've started down the route you tend then there is a trend there can be a trend towards something um because some intermediate things are not as exploitable, they're not as useful. Mm. Um, and I think that's, that's fairly clear with flight, although there are lots of um, gliding animals. There's nowhere near as many as there are fully flighted animals, and nowhere near as many as, as non-flighted animals. You know, it seems like this little that space is a relatively small one in terms of functional anatomy. Um, and... You probably get that at more sort of hand wavy larger scales, which might have been happening with um uh non mammalian synapsids, you know the shorter tail and the gate and the rib cage and stuff. I can sort of see all that coming together in a way that leads to a trend over time right mm. um so that you can you end up with things, yeah, having an overall trend that goes on for many millions of years towards something because that thing that they're heading towards is a more exploitable space and the further they go down it the more they're pushed into that space yeah um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um there's a, there's a and maybe one last thing to cover there's this is another one of those groups where i mentioned earlier that you know you look in the books about w when books cover non-mammalian synapsids you'll get dimetrodon edaphosaurus probably thranaxodon probably cynognathus and then you're into mammalia forms, Morganucodon and such. <clears throat> but there's all these like, and Dicynodonts often get mentioned, particularly Lystrosaurus, you know, abundant, well known uh, fossil um, known from a key fossil used in establishing the reality of continental drift because it was, you know, supposedly found in Antarctica and South Africa and Australia and all over the place. But um, but you don't get there's so many other groups that you don't get mentioned that that don't get discussed and often it's like the weird mo the weirdest most interesting ones don't get covered so or or they're things that we have heard about in passing but we've only ever heard about them in passing and you never see them explored in any 
depth and often it's like wow there must be like a whole story there that we haven't heard we want we want to know we want to know more indications of you know unusual trajectories in their evolution or indications of unusual uh you know sophisticated behavior so a couple of examples of those have you ever heard about the venomous non-mammalian synapsid nope there's a thing called euchambersia uh, let me just check this section of text I'm looking at. Um, now, now you'll recognise this. It, it's a it's a therocephalian. Um, okay, so one of those. <laughs> it's a it's a Moscarinid therocephalian, the best known member of which is Moscarinus, of course. Um, but Euchambersia, the canine on the outer surface, has got like an obvious groove, and um, that I think I think there's also as well as this groove, there's supposed to be like the groove is linked to some chamber in the maxilla, in the the, the bones of the, the face. But um, on that basis, it's been suggested to be uh, venomous. It was a venomous therocephalian. But of course, I'm assuming you're going to be thinking about the baboon from mm. all yesterdays, because some some of these since these various claims have been made about possible venomosity in some fossil tetrapods it's been shown that that in fact these supposed correlates of venomosity in some fossil tetrapods yeah they might correlate with venomosity but in their living animals they have these features that aren't venomous at all so baboons have got grooved canines and there are various other animals there are even, there are other monkeys and stuff that do as well mm. so um whether Euchambersia really is venomous or not, uh, it's a nice idea, but it's you need it's not something possible. else to go with that, don't you? Like, yeah. Uh, and but the problem is, I I should imagine that these animals are so um, different from um, living living correlates that to find something like well a venom sack or whatever. You wouldn't you wouldn't really know what you're looking at inside the skull, would you? You couldn't say, well, this is definitely a such and such, and that's definitely this. Well, would you? It'd be harder to. Yeah, um, uh, this, but this, uh, this is an issue basically where you're looking for soft tissue structures that you just won't have. So if you're if you're um, thinking that it's going to be conducting venom through grooves in its teeth, then you'll need, you know, glands that are located in the gum tissue or the lip tissue or something that, um, in some living animals, have no correlate whatsoever. So you think of what people have recently, this discovery of venom glands in the, the jaws of monitor lizards. Well, that's glands located in between the roots of the teeth with ducts leading to the spaces in between the teeth. And you're not going to know any of that from, from fossils. So no, no, similar no. thing here. So, so that, that's, but that's an interesting thing that adds, may add complexity to the history of these animals. Within the Tapanocephalians, there's a weird group called the Storacocephalids, um, traditionally given their own group called the Cerecephalids, which, if you've never seen these things, they've got, so they're like Tapanocephalians, like similar to like moss chops. Um, some of these animals have got like a really thick domed skull roof, then they've got like a weird depressed snout, and it's been said that their head is oriented on the neck such that like the head is, the dome head is like pointing, the face is pointing downwards. And it's been suggested that some of them were headbangers, that they like did the same thing that, you know, like goats and sheep and dome skull dinosaurs allegedly did. Um, but Styracocephalus has got, instead of a dome, it's got like a giant big cone, a great big spike 
sticking up off the top of its head. In addition, it's got um, like big bony bosses, big swellings over its eyes and also around the back of the skull as well. So these things, I don't think, because that, 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 that big spike must have been you know, sheathed in keratin of some sort, probably hardened keratin. I don't think they were using it as a sword and running up to one another and like impaling their rival through the chest or head or whatever. It's probably, I, I would guess it's a, it's a visual display structure. But if that's a visual display structure, a giant cone on the head, and it belongs to a group, these Tapanocephalians that have got this like domed skull roof, doesn't that make you think, hmm, was that dome really used for bashing? Was it maybe for visual display? And, 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 you know, in thinking that, I'm reminded of the discussion people have been having about the dome skulls on dome skull dinosaurs because there's been a big debate there as to, well, were they really smacking heads together? Uh, some people have said, no, they just weren't. They're just not built like that. Other people say maybe they're hitting each other in the body. Other people say, no, they don't think they're hitting anything at all because they're just full of bits if they do. And there was, uh, there's even a paper that says that um, the... Um, the detailed microscopic structure of the surface of the dome indicates there was some kind of like weird, thick epidermal covering. <laughs> so maybe they were, I'm not kidding, there's an article that says maybe they were cone heads. So pachycephalosaurs, dome's got dominance, so should be imagined. <laughs> so, which is very similar to what's been suggested for Staurocephalus. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. And, yeah, sorry, sorry go, go on. on. No, well, I was just—I was going to say one more, one more like thing about um, like complexity and and weird stuff going on in these animals is some of them are often illustrated as social. You, you always you always see groups of like dinosaurs, or groups of dinosaurians, sometimes because some of them have been found, uh, you know, assemblages uh, of many individuals or several individuals found found together. But what about like more detail on their social lives? You know, we know pretty much nothing about that. But you're gonna you're gonna be thinking that if these are like all the systems, um, biochemical, physiological, ecological, behavioural, whatever, all the things that are present in mammals, early versions of those things will obviously be evolving in non-mammalian synapsids. So you've got to be expecting some sorts of you know complex behaviour of, of some of some sort. And there was a a fossil published. Oh, it was really recently. It was just like two years ago. Um, which which uh, it had like a bunch. Um, it described a bunch of varanopids preserved together in the same burrow, and varanopids are like one of the oldest of all non-mammalian synapsid groups. They're like the sister group to like all the the, the rest of the clade or something. Mm -hmm. And we mustn't make the mistake of assuming that just because animals are preserved together in a burrow, then they are that there was anything like you know monogamy or cooperation or anything like that involved we shouldn't make that assumption but but it's intriguing that there was what about uh, um yeah what about trackway trackways do we have yeah there definitely are data yeah. from these guys there's quite there's a lot there's a lot of trackway data um known for uh some of the early synodonts in the triassic because because often they're like you know wandering around the edges of of lakes and stuff in the desert like in this lots of good tracks in the states but so far as i can remember they're all just like singletons mm. um and they don't really tell you anything like you got the tritid tritidontid track or something um 
I don't. I'm not aware of anything that really great um, big herds of cynodonts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'm not aware of anything like that. But then, yeah. Well, no, that was pretty interesting. I think Irene got her money's worth there. Well, I hope so. I feel that that was a bit of a rambling mess. Yeah, but it kind of had but, to be because, you know, it's hard to give such a large uh, thing a coherent structure yeah. and touch on lots of things that are interesting. But I think I'm not in a, yeah, and I'm not in a good place on these animals because this <laughs> I, I need to have... One bit you as a child. <laughs> Uchembersia, I'm aware. Uchembersia. Um, yeah, yeah I, I need to get like sort of a review sorted so I know so I've got a better idea on the terminology and the shape of the phylogeny and that sort of stuff and uh, like I say this the last time I started writing about them was well the last time I did anything on them was years ago I've obviously got to get it done for the big VP book because there's and I've got some pictures you would have you would have seen some of the pictures but, yeah okay all right. Tick done. Answered. Um, uh, <laughs> we've got a question from... Thundercats. <laughs> Thundercats? <laughs> what? Uh, your memory is terrible. Yeah, I don't have a memory. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Last episode, when I successfully answered something, I just went, yay, Thundercats. And you said, what's Thundercats? <laughs> but I'm not going to do the same thing this time because that would be repetitive. <gasps> oh my god, we forgot to talk about the new <laughs> new tape here. No, don't, okay, we'll just tell, we're going to have to kick it to next episode because we don't have time. There's it's a such a big topic, the new tape here. You know, we've got a. <sighs> so Fabian, Fabian Lefuma, how would you say that? Yeah, like that. Like that. Okay. Lefuma. It's <laughs> very nice. Good name. Yeah, that's a good name. Um, uh, Fabian's got a rather long question here. Oh. Yes, very long. Oh, I'm scared already. <laughs> okay, you have read it, haven't you? Because my reading out of this question is going to be so bad that you're gonna, it's going to be actually impossible to follow me. So it's probably yeah. better just to read it yourself. But I will also try and read it out for the benefit of our listeners. Um, I will be skipping bits, I think. It's very brackety which is always tricky to read out. Uh, okay, so so Fabian asks, well, I don't see a question mark, so Fabian says, <laughs> <laughs> I would like to have your thoughts concerning the late Pleistocene extinction event, or more precisely, the lack of extinctions in Africa, which has always puzzled me somehow. First, ah. was Af Africa significantly spared compared to other continents? Blah, blah, blah. What do you think of about potential causes I'd go for a relatively lesser climatic climatic variability in the huge surface of the continent though I never dived into the literature and if there wasn't a true Pleistocene crisis didn't we trigger one during historical times with a dramatic decrease in populations of elephants, lions and so on uh, stupid and, evil charismatic megafauna he says yes Okay, and the rest isn't actually the question. So the the actual question wasn't that long. So th thanks, yeah, Fabian. Yeah. So it's about the lack of extinction, Pleistocene extinctions in Africa. What's that about, Darren? Hmm. Uh, I skim read the question, but I but I missed the bit about Africa. So, um, well, it 
it does seem it does seem that Africa did not suffer the same brunt of extinctions that um, other land masses did, particularly North America, South America, and Australia. Again, this is such a big subject. Oh, where do we start? Um, I think so. So there's no doubt that between the end of the Pleistocene and during the Holocene, significant loss of megafauna, and people have seen this and have tried to basically. I think there's kind of a lot of agendas some some of the research on this is agenda driven people are like trying to tie it into a single cause so um um the, the the most we should say to start with you know the most popular idea is obviously that that as people moved around the world they met naive fauna animals that weren't familiar with humans as predators and therefore they were easy for people to kill whereas because humans are ancestrally african we had co-evolved with african uh, megafauna and the idea is that therefore they were already used to us as predators and they were not so easy to kill but when people first went to like Australasia um, which whenever that was about 50,000 years ago I think um, then they encountered a naive fauna that didn't run away from people and it was easy for people to hit them on the head or throw something at them and likewise with the Americas when people get to the Americas whenever that is very controversial but um you've got this mass extinction event around about 11,000 years ago, which does seem to correlate roughly with when people are like spreading across the land. More recently, people get to places like New Zealand, where something like conventionally said to be somewhere between 1,000 and 800 years ago, you've got the mass extinction. Well, it's not, actually, New Zealand is not a mass extinction, but it's an extinction of megafauna. The moa go extinct, as do moas, whatever, or, and as well as like <laughs> other, uh, other endemic uh, taxa. So, so this so-called Blitzkrieg model, the idea that as people spread around the world, wherever people go, the uh, extinctions are synchronized with human, uh, human arrival. There are some really good studies done. Now, the, and I find this difficult to talk about, the same as like extinctions throughout Too the whole soon. of the geological record. Too, Too soon. soon. <laughs> Too soon, dude. Um, <laughs> my mum was a sloth because, <laughs> because um, still is, doesn't do anything. Um, because, because this is this is my this is my 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 casual answer to everything. The world is complicated, and stuff that goes in one goes for one area. It's often a big assumption that it goes for something else. So we've got some very good studies that show in some parts of the world. I don't think there's any reasonable doubt. He says that, for example, humans caused the extinction of big animals on New Zealand. That's so recent. People go there. That there's every indication that their um their use of moa was so you're talking about a group of animals Mowers. yeah <laughs> you're talking about a group of birds that produce one or two eggs they take like a decade to reach delicious full size. eggs <laughs> delicious eggs they, they're slow growing they look after their juveniles for a long period of time that's an animal that's just begging to go extinct isn't it it's just not up to it's a very lazy animal. Evolution hasn't given it the capacity to withstand a molecule. Of, hang on, hang on, hang on. I can think of another humans. animal that has relatively few young and spends a, lot, spends a long time growing and a long time looking after its young. But how many people are, how many of those are being killed by vicious predators? Whereas if you moved into a habitat and started taking out moa, they're gone within like, well, like, I don't know, decades or years, right? Because they're just not replacing themselves. So I would say 
there's good reason and similar thing for Hawaii, the Mediterranean islands. We've got good reason for thinking that people move and Madagascar and mascarines, dodos, that kind of stuff. People move in, they could they can eradicate animals very quickly. So we've got good models showing this can happen within a short space of time if those organisms are just, you know, not able to replace themselves quickly enough to so but when you employ this kind of thinking to a continent-wide scale. Well, John Allroyd did this in 2001 in a paper, I think published in Science, um, on North American megafauna. And most of the species, about 40 species affected by N Pleistocene extinction events, pretty much all of them are in the same boat as what I just said for MOA. They produce very low numbers of juveniles. They replace themselves really slowly. They're not able to cope with a reasonable degree of, uh, <laughs> but they're, they're not able to like, you know, if they're hunted, they're in big trouble. They're going to go extinct. And he ran a simulation, um, which basically showed that even with a relatively small band of hunt population of hunters, um, that weren't undergoing, Oh, I should have said that we've got good evidence that like in New Zealand, the hunting was incredibly wasteful. They were like killing mower. And then this stuff about, about ethnic people like using the whole of the carcass and you know being super responsible stewards of the land no no people just killed things and <laughs> and i'll just finish i'll just finish the best bit the drumstick on this one and then i'll get me a fresh one that's basically how they worked they were using like less than a third of the exploitable meat from the from the mower so it was massively wasteful uh, huge piles there are there are literally piles of dead mower that were that were left by by people so so we know this whole myth of people like living in harmony with the land and sustainably utilizing organisms, complete rubbish. We've never worked that way. We probably never will. So all right, apply this to North America. Yeah, a good model showing that with a, a small human population, a reasonable level of hunting, basically animals like mammoths and mastodons and ground slaves, they're just not able to replace themselves fast enough. And... Um, as for whatever's going on with the climate at the same time, well, um, that's really unclear because you've got different... It, it basically doesn't seem that there's anything big and major going on with the climate at the same time, though. In fact, you've got climatic amelioration going on at the same time. The climate's becoming like warmer and nicer for the animals. It's not becoming harsher or colder. Um, of course, in the uh, late Pleistocene, though, you do have major aridification in some parts of the world. And weird climatic variability happening in part of the late Pleistocene that seems to have seems to have affected some parts of the world more severely than it did others and in particular there's uh, some people say Australia was particularly badly affected and if Australia is seen as part of the same story as the other places which is that like people move in and you get extinction then obviously you would want human occupation to correlate with the extinction of the megafauna. But in Australia, it now seems, this has been, been very controversial, you know, strong opinions on both sides, but it now seems that this is not the case. It actually seems that of the, uh, of the majority of species that were affected, because um, what's the number of species? It's, it's, uh, but basically, um, virtually all of them, were gone before humans are supposed to have arrived at 50,000 to 45,000 years ago. Most of them probably became extinct something like 130,000 years ago during, like, that's way back in the late Pleistocene. 
Um, and it would seem that that matches with aridification, uh, disappearance of lakes and stuff that happened in Australia at that time. So yes, there may have been an extinction in Australia caused by people because you've still got a small number of species, like some, like around about 10 species that are overlapping with people and do become extinct around about 50,000 years ago. But some of the taxa that's supposed to been, have been involved in late Pleistocene extinctions had already gone by that time. So, <clears throat> so basically, I think the take home from that is that you've got different things happening in different parts of the world at the same time. And yes, people do cause extinctions, but they aren't necessarily the cause for all of the extinctions that are happening throughout the late Pleistocene and the Holocene world. And um, um, yeah, why Africa wasn't so severely affected. Um, well, Fabian says, what does he say? Lesser climatic variability, uh, the huge surface area of the continent. I mean, there's, so far as I know, there's no indication that it has the kind of s affected so severely by uh, aridification and so on as, as places like Australia. And uh, um, whether you could say now that the, the, the continent is going through a mass extinction event uh well there's so few taxa left i mean because we can't really talk of if if the existing megafauna in africa goes extinct and by megafauna what do we mean we mean taxa over a couple of hundred kilos you're talking about a handful of taxa you're not talking about um 20 or 30 or 40 taxa which, which well you we are if, aren't you if you're looking at all the antelope and all that but they're not well, going extinct they're fairly well, so, but some of them could go extinct. But I mean, even if you include them, how many species are you talking about? I don't know. You're talk well, you're not talking about many is the, is the answer. You're talking about like two elephants. I don't think giraffes are going to go extinct. Although, ah, if we're talking about numbers of species, there's the whole thing about how many, because there's loads of populations of giraffes mm. and conventionally they're all included in the same population but there's an argument that like there could be many species there because because of genetic and um, anatomical differences and so on um and then you've got well like lions are in deep trouble so that's a potential like uh megafaunal taxon but um yeah so right and obviously rhinos as well i mentioned rhinos and the hippo which again, hippos are abundant enough for you to think they probably aren't in danger of extinction. So, uh, yeah, I I think, and then the antelopes. Well, like the really big antelopes, like uh, elands and um, giant sable antelopes and stuff. Yeah, you could if you lose those, you're still only talking about like again a couple. You're talking about two or three, four, maybe five. I don't know. You're not talking about you're not talking about twenty or thirty or forty taxa dying off at about the same time, which is which is what happened in North America, South America, and happened in Australia, but in Australia isn't correlated with the appearance of humans. And Asia is a big grey area in this discussion because yes, there's a huge Asian um, you know, set of taxa that are extinct, but exactly um, how what age they are and how they correlate with the appearance and spread of people is there are some studies out there, but it's I know it's chronically understudied. Um, I believe Sam Turvey and colleagues at the Zoological Society of London are looking into that right now. Actually, there's been some really good papers done on 
the possible ages of stegodons and extinct deer and stuff, but there's a lot of work left to be done. So, um, is that anywhere close to dealing with Fabian's uh, comment? Well, he ends by saying, have a nice day and a nice recording. So, yeah. yeah. I think that, yeah, it was. Um, I think like a lot of these things, it's it's too complicated to answer because, well, when you've got a big grey area like Asia where you're not even sure when things went extinct and, you know, I, I think that I can see the appeal of having one hypothesis to rule them all. That's sort of how we do science, isn't it? <laughs> think of the simplest thing first. Say, okay, that did everything, and then go, oh, well, no, it didn't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wait, it doesn't work here. And then you modify it as best you can to fit the facts. Um, but it would be a little surprising, even, if... Um, humans managed to have this impact as noticeably as that. I mean, I don't know an, an awful lot about human migration, but surely it's got to do with population densities as well. So, you know, the first um, arrival, it might be a few thousand years, well, it might be a thousand years before the people get to a population density that they're going to be making an impact on, a significant impact on uh the fauna around them, right? I, I don't mm. know. Uh, mm. It's not like they arrived in this great big ar marching army mass, <laughs> you know, clubbing, clubbing big animals, is it? <laughs> Wouldn't it be small bands of people arriving and, yeah. you know, settling and maybe taking a while to get their populations up to anything that's going to have an impact? Yeah. And that'd be all be very, very messy. It'd be very difficult to tell what's going on, I should think. Yeah. There's a plus, of course, you can have people living in an area where there are big animals and they aren't necessarily exploiting them or putting them in danger of extinction because people Indeed. are adaptable animals and there's all kinds of resources they can use. And some of the populations that are thought to have had an impact on big, on megafauna, probably weren't hunting them anyway. And there's, there's often like, there isn't good evidence they were. In others, in others, there was, you know, we've got good evidence for like, you know, a lot of early um, North American people hunting megafauna, but um, for like some of the Australian peoples and some of the Asian peoples, I don't. I think in some cases there isn't any evidence. It's just a kind of guilt by association. So, having said all that, though, with the the reason that some of these megafauna are so potentially vulnerable to extinction at the hands of people is because you don't have to. Humans don't have to do much. To actually, because we're so efficient compared to many other predators, that you don't need to. Plus, plus the fact that we're so adaptable, you know, someone could go out and kill elephants, but if the elephants are gone, that's fine because they can subsist on fishes or whatever. They don't yeah. have to move. They don't have to move out the area altogether, which say lions would. If lions ate all the elephants, they'd like starve, die <laughs> hypothetically. Indeed. Yeah. Um, whereas, you only have to take out. You only have to kill like. A herd of elephants, we've all seen nature documentaries, if not live elephants. A herd of elephants, there might be like a baby, a calf born once a year. Well, that's no problem for people to kill a calf a year, right? So hypothetically, again, there's all kinds of like strings and tents in this, but hypothetically, let's say people are killing one elephant calf a year. That could be enough to put that elephant population in trouble in the long term. Um, or not. <laughs> 
<laughs> because, because of course, no animal, no animal ever breeds once in its lifetime. <laughs> uh, in a lifetime, a female elephant might produce, I don't know, conservatively five to ten calves. So, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think the point stands that um, yeah. a a large k-selected um, animal is in is in greater danger once you start putting them under pressure like that. If you do manage to kill their young, then that's a much bigger problem for them than our selected animals, which are just laying six billion eggs and who cares, right? And that's probably what a lot of dinosaurs were doing, right? Oh, yes. Which is probably, yes. which I don't know, uh, this is sort of one of the arguments of how they managed to reach large sizes, isn't it? That they weren't, in many ways, they weren't as vulnerable as the big mm. K-selected mammals are to extinctions and that sort of thing because they had our selection going on. Um so that does leave big mammals at uh, more of a danger, doesn't it, to yep. things like this? Yeah. Also, uh, presumably, uh, there are other migrations of other fauna going on at the same time as humans, right? Oh, uh, yeah. And we probably bring in dogs and things like this. Oh, dogs. Yes, that's true. Yeah, well, didn't we, didn't we talk about dog domestication last time? Cause, we did a little bit, yeah. yeah. Some people talking about dogs being associated with people for yeah not not a new thing not like cats or hamsters but like (laughs) (laughs) man i thought we'd had hamsters forever (laughs) do you know when the golden hamster was domesticated Uh, do you know when it was discovered as a as a as a species no 1936 (laughs) so uh, most of the books say that all of the Golden hamsters, because bear in mind, domestic hamsters, okay, there are like Mongolian hamsters, dwarf hamsters, Chinese dwarf hamsters, but most pet hamsters are domestic golden hamsters. They all come from, they all come from one female brought back from, <laughs> she must have been parthenogenetic, like a big, I don't know, I don't, <laughs> she must have been pregnant, I don't know, but they all come from that one <laughs> hamster brought back by a soldier in 1936 from Syria. Um, sorry, what? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, so dogs. Yeah. yeah. Um people have said that dogs have been used by people for tens of thousands of years. And yeah. 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 I forget where I was going with that, but Well, I was just saying that's another thing that um to consider when there's migrations of things going on. What effects well, feral dogs would have, for example. How long would that take? to have an effect would it have an effect well it obviously does probably on not so much on megafauna though right it's much more likely to have a bigger effect on smaller animals yes and many of the although when we talk about pleistocene extinctions we're focused on megafauna there are mid-sized animals that become extinct at the same time Mm. it's like you know various peccaries and smaller antelopes and birds ground nesting birds and stuff that what we need to do to settle this, Darren, is we need to genetically engineer. No, 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 no. no. Oh, it's better than that. We need to genetically engineer, um, like bring them back, all these extinct animals, and taste <laughs> and test you... them. And if all the extinct ones are delicious, then I think that's a fairly good argument that people had something to do with it. Right. <laughs> if they're all gross and disgusting, or some of them are delicious and others are disgusting, yeah. then you know, maybe it's not so much to do with the people. Do you reckon you get a Kickstarter running for that? <laughs> yes. As long as we make a video. 
<laughs> oh yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um. Yeah. So. Um. Answered. Sort of. It's another one of those things where, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if we actually focused on the, the crux of his question, but because, um, because Africa, you need to be to give a proper, concise, authoritative answer on an issue like this. You need to be an expert on it. And while I am, yeah, no, joking. Obviously, I'm not. And uh, yeah, and, uh, and neither are you. So, um, but whatever. I think it was good enough. Yeah. yeah Thank you for good enough. Yeah. Uh, thanks. yeah. So thanks to Fabian Lafuma and Irene Dels for their questions. And Marcus sent in a, sent in a last minute cash for question. Marcus, good. But we're oh, going Marcus. to. Darren wants to read up on that. Oh yeah. Um. So we're gonna kick that on to next episode. Yep. Okay. Do you want to do any cheapskate questions? Oh, Facebook. Uh, mum, 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 Cheapskate, or maybe we should call it Cheapskate Shoutouts or something. Cheapskate Shoutouts. Memo says we should mention Giga. Gareth Monga says, what? I hadn't heard that. And then, right, this is a good one. Gareth says, uh, Gareth says, don't know if it's hugely relevant to podcasts, but Bear Grylls is getting right up my bloody nose regarding his attitudes towards wildlife tetrapods or otherwise surely with many species existing on a knife edge broadcasters and presenters should demonstrate a more responsible attitude towards broader environmental issues as opposed to just critically endangered organisms for example and do you know who bear grills is yes but i've never seen him or, or yeah like well uh, there's a lot of crap that i watch on tv thanks to the fact that i've got children and i have seen bear grills stuff and i dislike this whole thing very much. So we actually, I understand that we actually get a sanitized version of some of the Bear Grylls stuff. So there's one where he's in uh, Australia and um, he like, <laughs> the reason this is infuriating is partly because it's like mock, it's like mocked up to make it look like a survival situation when it, everybody knows it's not. Mm. And people have like proved it's not time and time again by various like, there's a bit where he jumps over a crevasse and said, oh, that nearly killed me. You know, if, if you ever have to do this, be careful because you might die. And then people have gone to the same spot and they found that it's literally right next to like a main road with a cafe across the, you know, that sort of thing. Um, or we know that he's like sleeps in a hotel when he says he's like out in the wilderness. Um, but so when he finds an animal, he says, because this is survival, this is what you do, you know, wrenches the animal's head off and eats its guts out. You know, lit I'm not joking, literally does that stuff. So one in Australia where he finds a cave and he says, now you see there's lots of bats up here. Now, you know, survival situation, this is what you do. So he makes a fire in the cave, kills the bats and eats them. And then in the, I think the same program, there's a bit where he finds like uh, a python. I don't know which one of the pythons, one of the Australian pythons. Australia, Australia, as you probably know, is pretty good in terms of you know, you're not allowed to just go and stamp on animals for fun. There's like sometimes you get in trouble, legal trouble. But he catches this big python and swinging it over the top of his head, bashes its head in on a rock, bash, bash, and then eats it raw. Mm, yum, yum. This is what you do when you find a python in the bush. It's like you're not allowed to do that. You know, you're not just allowed to find an animal <laughs> and bash its head in and just eat it raw. <laughs> and even if it was a survival situation, do you think it's a good idea to eat a raw python that you just found, you know, living in some. <laughs> swamp or something it's like uh people have learned over many thousands of years <laughs> that that you know if you eat raw snakes or many animals there's the danger of being infected by all kinds of 
things living in its guts or its flesh or whatever. That's why we invented cooking and preparation and stuff. So it's kind of like bogus advice and it's just it's just not right at all. And the fact that it's kind of it's, it's nothing more than 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 um than than entertainment because nobody watches this stuff and then really goes out and you know finds himself in a life or death situation and needs to eat a live snake. It's just watched by people that are waiting for the football to come on or whatever. So yeah, I'm totally with you, Gareth. Um, I read a bit of Bear Grylls's biography, mm. and um, and it started off by saying how important his Christianity was in his life. Apparently, like Christianity is a big thing for him, and I'm sorry, but that doesn't does really it do not me. say in the Bible, <laughs> "Thou shalt bash the snakes"? Well, doesn't it? It might say something in the Bible about like. Um, every animal is basically just created so that man can use it however he sees fit. I'm pretty sure it does say something like that in there. And so, therefore, some religious people have said that, ah, we're supposed to just, you know... Yeah, eat, the, thing about, the thing about the Bible is that there's something for everyone in there, right? <laughs> Anything you do, you can go find a justification for it. Yes. Yeah. Because, well, especially the Old Testament, that's what it's all about, really, isn't sure. it? There was a okay. whole bunch of stuff that happened, and they turned it into a bunch of stories about a god. Yes. And, However, um, my, my, yes, I, I, I agree with you, but my, my point is that, that although someone might say that a literal belief in Christianity means that, you know, you're supposed to, there's certain sectors of humanity that you're supposed to stone to death, because that's like, that's what the Bible tells you to do. And there's also like loads of non-human animals that you're supposed to use and abuse as you will, as you're supposed to, as you want to, because that's in the Bible as well. My thinking is that if you go around saying that you're a Christian and that Christianity, which is meant to be about, you know, loving your brother slash sister you know in a being a, an excellent person to me is somewhat contradictory to the idea that you might find creatures and just bash them to death just for this just for television in fact i would say it's a complete um contradiction that the idea that that you could say on the one hand that you're like a good person who believes in the sanctity of life and worship the creator and then at the same time you just literally you know just for TV, just for money. You're smoking animals to death, eating eating live snakes, eating scorpions that you pull out of their burrows, and that's just yeah, it just makes it more than more, all the more ironic for me. So, so f- you bear grills. Oh god, now I have to edit that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you're the one that wants to keep it clean. We should. We should. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, Irene Dels on uh, Twitter says, um, "What's the loudest tetrapod?" Hmm. The answer is a known fact, and it's the blue whale. Yeah, I was going to say whales are pretty loud, aren't they? Yeah, it's the blue whale, and I know this because once I was watching a blue whale on telly, and, <laughs> <laughs> and it made a noise, and my TV went. <laughs> Just like the uh Back. TH. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um that that's Okay. Uh, Are blue whales the loudest if you take them out of the water though? Well I don't know. Water propagates sound much better than air. Um so yeah, I'm not uh, I don't know about that. Yeah. I'm not gonna yeah. Google that, that's too much trouble now. Yeah. Alright, okay, let's wrap up then. Yeah, can I just mention Brian Eng? Brian has a website called Don't Mess With Dinosaurs, and he's a really good artist. 
and he does really nice kind of gnarly um uh sort of biologically plausible you may have, some people may have seen that crazy sauropod there's two sauropods i think they're sauroposidons where they're displaying to each other with like giant extendable dewlaps do you know the picture yeah it's been on tetsu and sv pal and if he's got a youtube channel he uh under the pseudonym uh or, or artistic name historian himself and i just checked out this new video he did called in mountains so go to the historian himself channel look at this new music video in mountains i thought it was pretty awesome really nice and it combines kind of wildernessy stuff with some sort of like yeah sort of poetry kind of song uh music video and some really cool creature effects as well definitely worth it for the creature effects so yeah big shout out to him and um Brian mentions the idea as well of like uh, what we should do about guests, more guests on the on 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 the this thing we do, whatever it's called, because podcast cast, because it's kind of become more difficult to accommodate guests. I feel given that we've now gone down the cash for questions format, um, but we do talk about it, and we would welcome people's thinkings on this. Cash for guests. Cash for guests. That's a great idea. Hey, I know loads of famous people. So do you. So hang on, hang on, hang on. How do we make money out of these famous people? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we could either charge them to come on the show, <laughs> which might not work, <laughs> or we could, I don't know, maybe it isn't such a good idea after all. Well, no, I think that, no, that's a possibility. <laughs> we could do like little mini like Kickstarter type things for if you want a guest on the show, you know, maybe people can... Oh, I don't know. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Give a bit of money to get someone on the show. Yeah, I mean, I, I did think that we should have people that are uh, obviously our only guests so far have been Blake Smith of Monster Talk and Memo Kozman, our good friend and collaborator, to discuss Cryptozoologicon. Um, so I kind of think it should be people that are involved in the same world research and creative stuff that we are, but um, I don't know. Whatever. Hey, put your thoughts in the... That reminds me, I meant to look at the comments people have left on the website, on the podcast website. There's a lot of comments there. Mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, ah. yeah, no, I keep, me yeah. I keep meaning uh, to mention um, Tom Holtz um, chiding us about um, <laughs> MC, MC Extinction and all that. And you know, I've, only, I've only got one thing to say, which is... <laughs> <laughs> and that's science. <laughs> um. Right. Are we done? So, uh, yeah, we're done. Yeah. So there's now. Okay. So here we go. Is the this? Let's do this right. There is now a Tetrabodzology Red Bubble shop. Go to Red Bubble, put in Tetsu. My icon for no particular reason is a picture of a chicken, uh, Seabright chicken. Um, and I'm currently selling my Monitor Lizards T-shirt. This is an experiment. I want to see if people want to buy it, and if they like it, then I'll do others. Um, there's Tetrapods Body Facebook page, which you should join if you are um, interested in Tetrapods Body. The stuff we talk about. There's a Tetrapods Body blog, blog currently hosted at Scientific American. I tweet at. Perhaps you think you're being treated unfairly. No. <laughs> Good. It would be most. Uh, it would be unfortunate if I had to leave a garrison there. At Tetsu, um, 
If you're interested in Tetrapodsology and the stuff covered on the blog and in the podcast, there's a book called Tetrapodsology Book One, which I think is still available. Get in there quick because it might be out for <laughs> by now. I've only been saying that for the past year and something. Um, John, myself, and our friend Memo Kozman have produced books published through our company, Irregular Books, namely All Yesterdays, which is about science and speculation in paleontology, and the Cryptozoological Volume One. Um, please do buy them. And Book Two is coming out imminently. imminently. And finally, um, TezuCon, the website for which is... Tezu.com slash convention. Convention, okay? So if you, we are hosting a Tetrabodzoology-themed convention to be held at the London Wetland Centre on July the 12th. Yep, which is um, a Saturday, I believe. Yeah, we've got a list of that. Will there'll be more information on the site? Please check it out. And you know, if you're interested, if you like our stuff, you know, it'd be great to see you. Um, a quick shout out for um, Tetsu Time. Time.tetsu.com, which is an adventure time themed webcomic <laughs> produced by John Termel and Albertus Claw, and also Ethan Kozak's Tetsu Comic. Comic.tetsu.com. There was one on Godzilla. And Godzilla comes out at the end of this week. Oh, my God. Hey, I'm also going to uh, Katrina Von Gruau's uh, exhibition this weekend. Right, and what about you? Uh, I'm at johnconway.co. I'm also on Twitter. Mike DeTerris. Nick DeTerris. Face Facebook. Facebook? <laughs> oh, I'm on the Facebook. Goodbye. <laughs> 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 and, um, and Tumblr, which Darren hates. Ah. Um, uh, my Tumblr is also Nike Terrace, but you get to it through log.johnconway.co. I say log rather than blog because I'm special. <laughs> Blog's a stupid word. It is. It also sounds like such a big sort of square thing, doesn't it? It sounds like a great big cube of poop or something. <laughs> oh, I just choked out a real big blog. <laughs> <laughs> log isn't that much better in that respect. Log. There you go. <laughs> John's log. What's on your log right now, John? Um, crazy picture of a giant octopus robot lady. Oh, that. Yeah. Ah, yes. Ah, oh, yes. I um, came up with the name, but you didn't use it. No, because it was stupid. Everyone suggested <laughs> it was stupid. <laughs> You know, you know, Pierre J, the journal. Yeah, you're aware of it. Yeah, <laughs> their their um logo is a monkey, and there was a competition to come up with the name of the monkey. And do you know what my suggestions were? <laughs> I came up with two: Piero yeah. and Monko. 